0: Four, as so we come to these 18 verses in our ongoing study, through the Bible's second book, uh, let me read all 18 for us this morning, and then pray for God's blessing on our study, and then we'll begin together. So listen now, as God speaks to us through His perfect word once again. Then He said to Moses, "Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron." Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worshipped from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down, And read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and seventy of the elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you tablets of stone, with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called out to Moses, out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do pray that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. That you would even consecrate us now, our minds, our ears, the eyes of faith, as we want to hear your truth. As we want to know your presence amidst us through your covenant's word. And so we pray that you would give us understanding. We pray that you would give us eagerness to hear your word. That you would help me to preach it as you say I must, with faithfulness and courage and compassion. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sure many of you know that Mount Everest is the tallest mountain in the world, rising some 29,032 feet into the sky, but I wonder how many of you know what is the second tallest mountain in the world. It's a mountain called K2. Now, while it's only about 500 feet shorter than Everest, it's far more deadly. One magazine has called it the graveyard of many a mountaineer. Well, in 1953, an American climber named George Bell, he tried to summit K2, and he failed. And he later wrote a book about his failed attempt to summit K2. And that book was subtitled The Savage Mountain, because he said it's a mountain that tries to kill you. And we come this morning to a mountain that rises only 7,497 feet into the sky. But this is a mountain that's much deadlier. It's far more terrifying if you were to ask an Israelite standing there at Mount Sinai. Because while the tallest mountains of the world, yes, they have slopes and dangerous faces, cracks and crags that cause all kinds of chaos and calamities. They don't have what Mount Sinai had in Exodus 24, which is the awesome presence of God Descending upon a mountain. Presence that is so awesome that it's shaken the mountain. We've seen for many weeks in recent chapters through chapter 19 and 20, even the book of the covenant revealing this as well. When God speaks, he speaks with a fearsome voice. He speaks with an awesome voice. And it was so terrifying, you might remember from last week. So terrifying to God's people. That after they heard the 10th commandment in Exodus chapter 20, I said, Moses hey, you go back up and talk to God for us, because if we hear his voice again, we're going to die. And so Moses went back up the mountain. And what we looked at last week was what our text today calls the Book of the Covenant, which comprises these 42 or so laws from the end of chapter 20 all the way through chapter 23. These laws that were to dictate Israel's religious life, their public life, their their home life, a life that would be consecrated in holiness to the Lord, a life that would be lived in the righteousness and justice of the Lord. And now, tucked away in the middle of Exodus is Exodus chapter 24. It's a chapter that one scholar has called one of the most amazing scenes in all the Bible. Another has said it's one of the most dramatic and surprising stories you'll find in Scripture. and I. Don't think it's too much of a stretch to say, maybe for some of you, even in here today, it's the first time you've heard this story read in Exodus 24. Well, we want to uncover some of the amazement in this chapter. It's a surprising drama as we notice this central truth from the passage. Only the blood of the covenant can bring you into fellowship with God. That's the simple point of this passage. Only the blood of the covenant can bring you into fellowship with God. As some of you in here today, you have no interest in fellowshipping with the Father. And I hope you might actually see from this text why it is the most blessed thing to receive, fellowship with God. Some of you might be interested in fellowship with God, but you don't know how you might get it. Well, our text is going to tell you how. Some of you might say, well, I have fellowship with God, but it's not nearly as constant of communion as I would want it to be. Our text is going to direct you as well in that. So the scene before us actually has two simple parts. So we'll walk through this chapter with two simple headings. First 11 verses, we're going to see God's covenant sealed. And then the final seven verses, God's glory revealed. So His covenant's going to be sealed. And then Moses, particularly, is going to see God's glory revealed. So the covenant sealed. Look again at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 24. Yahweh says to Moses... Come up to the mountain, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. My kids, I wonder if any of you in recent weeks, perhaps months, or just recent memory, have received an invitation. Maybe to a friend's house, or perhaps to a birthday party, or some other special event. And if you have, I would imagine that when you received that invitation, there was a a sense of of expectation, wasn't there? How much must have been the trepidation when this 73-man delegation gets an invitation to come up Mount Sinai? Because Moses says, hey, you three and 70 elders, you're getting ready to come up with me to the mountain of God. Now, what is this mountain of God? But the mountain of God, they've been told just a few chapters before, they couldn't touch it lest God kill them. A mountain that was shaking and quaking when God spoke with thunder and fire. Flashes of all this electricity bursting all around him. And now you want us to go halfway up the mountain. And you notice, of course, even verse 2 tells us, well, yes, that 73-man delegation, they're going to go halfway up the mountain. Well, Moses, he's going to go all the way up the mountain. Because Moses, remember, students, he's, he's the mediator. God-appointed mediator between Israel and Yahweh. And that's his role, to hear the word and deliver it to the people, and whenever you think about Moses and his mediation, don't take long to take your thoughts all the way to Jesus Christ who is the only mediator between God and man because of course Jesus himself ascended to the mountain of God which is Mount Zion. But he doesn't leave his people at the foot of the mountain, does he? He brings his people with him, such as his mediation for his people. But before the ascent can begin, Moses has to read something. Look at verse 3. He told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And you want to pay attention, of course, in this chapter, the centrality of God's covenant word for His covenant people. Their life in every way, it comes through the Word. The Word shapes their life together. And this is even here a good pattern for what it means for us today to respond to God's covenant Word as God's covenant people. Because what you see in these couple of verses the ordinary way that God brings truth to His people. is through His ordained servant, giving it to His people. They receive it, and of course they respond with, with faith and repentance and obedience. And I wonder if you have that sincere heart of Israel in this passage hearing God's word delivered to you, and the immediate reaction being, all that the Lord has spoken. Yes, we will do it. And so what you need to know is happening here in this scene, although it may not be as immediately present before your eyes, it's an ancient covenant-making ceremony that's taking place. Because what would happen in the ancient world when you made a covenant relationship? Uh, It began with words being shared, promises and oaths being exchanged, But that wasn't it. There were more things that needed to happen. More things that continue on. Notice the end of verse 4. Moses arose early in the morning. He built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. You might remember from last week, the end of chapter 20, it gave rules and laws about worshiping God with an altar. So God said there's a right way to make an altar. And a wrong way to make an altar. Therefore, there's a right way of worshipping at the altar. And a wrong way of worshipping at the altar. And he attached a promise to these laws. In verse 24 of Exodus 20, he says, If you make a right altar and worship me rightly, I will come and be with you. That's what Moses is doing here. This altar symbolizing God's presence. The twelve pillars symbolizing God's people. It's a meeting place with God, this altar. But it's also meant to be a bloody meeting place. Look at verse 5. Moses sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. So in the ancient covenant making ceremonies you wouldn't just exchange words and vows and oaths, you many times would cut animals in half. That's why the ancient people would often talk about cutting a covenant. Even when I was in seminary the required definition of a covenant that we had to memorize came from an influential book which simply said that a covenant is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. Because students, what you would have happened there before, as you cut the animals in half, and ordinarily, the parties would walk through the animals, underscoring the significance of the covenant, that if I break the covenant, I'm faithless to my vows, let this be done to me, namely, cut in half. But more to the point for this covenant-making ceremony is the blood that comes from these animals, Because you see, of course, Moses takes some of the blood. He puts half of it in basins. And he takes the other half and he throws it against the altar. Symbolizing God's commitment to this blood bond. Then here again, you'll see in verse 7, he reads the book of the covenant. They again exchange vows of obedience and faithfulness. All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And look at what Moses does in verse 8. He took the blood and threw it on the people. Now, it was a couple of months ago that Emily had taken our oldest son to soccer practice. And before the kids uh, go to bed, uh, we normally, you know, clean up your room or get things ready for the next day. And so they were getting ready to go to bed. And these kids went off to their room to clean up the room. And these kids went off to their room to clean up the room. And it didn't take long before the youngest children, there was sounds of shenanigans ensuing. and Not long after that... Uh, My four-year-old daughter came out, and to her credit, she wasn't screaming, because she tends to be one that would scream, and and she had her hand covering her eye. And it it would be a stretch to say blood was gushing from beneath the fingers, but certainly seeping forth. So I called my registered nurse wife. I said, you're going to need to come home, because Sarah's cut her forehead just above her eyebrow, and I think she's going to need stitches. And Emily said, well, okay, just look at it and see how deep it is. I said, I'm not going to look at it. I see enough blood. You need to come home. <laughs> Emily's a nurse. She can look at that stuff. Something of genetics in our family. I don't want to look at it. I've seen enough to know that's not good. In a sense, of course, for the Old Testament Israelites, they weren't allowed, were they, any sort of, spiritual aversion to blood. Moses says here, feel it. Look what he commands in verse 8. Behold the blood of the covenant. You don't get to run away from this blood. You have to feel this blood. You have to sense this blood. You have to see this blood. Why? It's the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Here is blood of the covenant that brings consecration. Setting apart God's people as his very covenant nation. A royal priesthood and a holy people. It's also blood of covenant confirmation. This is sealing the covenant. Of course, this bond in blood between God and his people. As they felt the blood, as they saw the blood on themselves. Actually, it would have been there. in all likelihood, of course, this blood isn't going on millions of Israelites. It's probably going on 70 elders of Israel representing God's people. As they see it upon them, they see it upon the altar. They know that this covenant now has been sealed. By the ancient covenant-making ceremonies, it wasn't just about words and vows and oaths and obligations, nor is it only about cutting animals in half and sprinkling blood. It was also about eating together. This meal of covenant ratification, we might say, but before God's people are going to eat with God, they, they need to meet with God. Look at verse 9 and 10, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God. Of Israel. Again, I don't know if it's actually possible for us this far away from that experience at Sinai to truly underscore the trepidation that these men surely had going up that mountain. This was a mountain that they were not supposed to come near. This is a mountain they didn't want to come near. And yet God says, now come up. And not just meet with me. The text simply says they saw God. And you'll see as the passage continues, it doesn't tell us anything about God. Descriptions, words about His form. Maybe it's because such descriptions would be all too short in describing who God really is. Or, or maybe it's because, more likely, because of their fear and trepidation, they just fell down on their face. And so notice what the text tells us. They saw, verse 10, There was under His feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. All we're told about is this blue brick road. On which God's feet trod. So clear that it's as though heaven has come down to earth. Isn't that always what happens when God's presence. When he draws near to his people. It's as though heaven has come down to earth. I wonder if you've known any such time when the Lord has drawn near to you. In such a way that all earthly life. Is now tinged and sweetened by the glories of heaven. So they see God, and notice now they have met with God, and so they eat with God. Verse 11, he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and ate, and drank. Uh, We're going to soon see in a few chapters' time, a few weeks' time, Lord willing, in our studies, that God's going to tell Moses, no one can see me and live. So you don't get to see my glory, this noble request of Moses. But you see that God granted this gracious exception to these 74 men. They saw God and not only did they see God, they ate with God. That his hand wasn't stretched out in judgment against them as his hand could have been and maybe even should have been stretched out in judgment against them. So great is his covenant mercy and grace that he doesn't just bring his people near. He offers to eat with them and does eat with them knowing, of course, it's a meal that symbolizes true fellowship with God. So this is God's covenant Sealed, And now we'll see in the last seven verses God's, God's glory revealed. Because it seems right to take the space between verse 11 and 12 as this delegation eventually goes back down to the foot of the mountain. And then sometime later, we're not told how long, look what God says to Moses in verse 12, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. We know that God is going to take His very finger and inscribe this law onto stone tablets. And and kids, don't miss the purpose of God's Word here in our text. It's for their instruction, meaning it's for their good. I wonder how you tend to receive God's Word as a merciful teacher, a gracious guide, or maybe more of a, a cruel dictator and harsh tyrant that just restricts you from doing what you really want to do. So he delivers, or he's going to deliver this word to the people that he receives up on the mountain. But before he gets there, he's got to say something to the elders. Notice verse 14. He said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Uh, Students, I imagine that many of you have been in enough English literature classes to know of this literary device called foreshadowing. I have a number of uh, friends and people in my life that have recently been caught up with the works of Ernest Hemingway, not least of which is because there's this PBS documentary that was uh, recently put out on Hemingway's life. And uh, one of his well-known books is a book on World War I. It's called A Farewell to Arms. And early on in that book, he has this Somewhat poignant foreshadowing line of the leaves fell early on the trees that year. And it's speaking more towards this reality that soon many young men were going to die in in this war. I want you to see verse 14 is giving us some foreshadowing of what's to come. Moses is getting ready to go up on top of the mountain. He doesn't know how long he's going to be there. He just knows he's going to be up there. By this point, he knows the nation of Israel well enough... To know when he departs, it probably is not going to go so great at the foot of the mountain. So when trouble arises, you need to go to Aaron, her, and your leaders will settle it. And sure enough, if you know the story, as Moses is up on the mountain, this is the last word he ever spoke to them, eventually he's going to come back down, isn't he? And trouble's brewing at the bottom of the mountain. And they've taken their issue to Aaron. What does Aaron do? Well, he doesn't settle the dispute as he should have, doesn't settle the issue as he ought to have, but he indulges the idolatry of God's people to such a degree that six weeks later, Yahweh is ready to wipe out the entire Israelite people. But it was for Moses' mediation and God's relationship with this covenant redeemer that his people were spared. And, of course, it's a relationship that only continues in its brilliance and grandeur. Notice verse 15, and Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. I want you to see a couple of things, too, in particular in these last few verses. The first of which is how the text is pointing us forward to God's presence. Because this same cloud of glory is going to dwell in the tabernacle, on the tabernacle, at the end of the book. Now, what Moses is going to hear in many ways for the next many days is these very specific commands and instructions about how to build the tabernacle where God is going to dwell with his people, that that glory cloud might be actually fully with his wilderness wandering a people. So it's pointing forward to God's presence. But the text also is pointing backward to God's power. Look at verse 16. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called out to Moses. Out of the midst of the cloud. Now kids can you think of anywhere else in the Bible. Where six days lead to a climactic seventh day. Certainly if you were. A discerning reader or listener of Exodus early on in the Hebrew's life, you would have immediately thought of Genesis 1 and 2. Six days of creation that lead to the climactic Sabbath day of rest on the 7th. And this is alluding to that because, of course, it's here that God is creating His covenant people. It's not just alluding to that scene in Genesis, I do think. It's also alluding to the recreation of all things after the flood because it was for seven days the flood waters came. Then after those seven days, the ark rose up to the heavens in God's protection and presence. And it's the same thing here. Moses ascending up to the mountain after seven days or 40 days and 40 nights. He's going to enjoy God's presence. And notice what 17 says it all looked like. The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Now, students... If God's presence was to draw near, if God's glory was to manifest itself before you, what images of that glory and grandeur would immediately come to mind? What you need to know is that all throughout the Bible, when God draws near, it's a most terrifying reality. Devouring fire is actually this phrase that more often than not is translated as consuming fire. It's, it's this immensity and purity of God's justice and brilliance before His people. This is God's glory revealed. Some of you may have known of an old German name of Albert Speer. He was something of a technological genius, a factory guru in Hitler's Third Reich regime. After Germany lost in World War II, he was one of 20 men that were brought to the Nuremberg trials. Albert Speer was the only one that confessed his guilt and so he was spared execution and sentenced to 20 years in jail. And after he got out of jail, he released a best-selling book which was a memoir of his life in many ways. And as he was going on a promotional tour for this book, he eventually came to Good Morning America. And the interviewer at the time had remembered that many years before he had said because of his role in Germany's tyrannical reign, he thought that forgiveness was not something he could possibly ever receive. And so the interviewer began to interact with him on this and he says, no, you know, this book is really just my attempt to cleanse my conscience. And then the interviewer says, so do you really think that there's no possibility of forgiveness? And he says, no, I don't think there's any possibility at all. And in many ways, I've often read the Exodus story. And I hope you have too, utterly really amazed at God's sustained, steadfast forgiveness of His people. Because it often seems like, why forgive this people at all? It seems like they're only hours away from the most majestic manifestations of His redeeming power. Then they're just walking on the two feet of grumbling and ingratitude. They've just seen, haven't they? Seventy elders even, seen God. And it's only six weeks later they're going to be building golden calves before Yahweh. And yet God, in His steadfast mercy, in His steadfast grace and love, He continues to forgive His people. And perhaps you might even be in here today and think, I'm not sure it's possible at all that I can be forgiven. Well, I want you to see two final things as we begin to close about the blood of the covenant. The blood that alone can bring you into fellowship with God. Number one, the blood of the covenant brings cleansing. Brings cleansing. It had to be sprinkled upon the people that they would be cleaned and consecrated before the Lord. Blood that even Hebrews chapter 9 picks up as typological for the forgiveness that is ours through the shed blood of, of Jesus Christ. Now some of you little children may have been like mine earlier this week with all of the mud and the rain. You know, they go outside and they get all together muddy and dirty. And there's a few of the kids that feel like they earnestly need to be cleansed of all of that mud and filth. There's others who are named nameless that they could just live in the mud and the filth without any desire of being clean whatsoever the Bible tells us that all of you are sinful to your core muddy and dirty to your very heart and soul and some of you in here today are desperate for cleansing some of you in here today have no interest in cleansing but all of you need cleansing and what can wash away your sin but the blood of the covenant the blood of the covenant brings cleansing number two the blood of the covenant brings communion communion because the blood is sprinkled upon the people, and that's not the end of this ceremony. No, it reaches this kind of culminating climactic point as the elders, the 74-man delegation along with Moses, they're, they're eating, they're dining, they're, they're feasting with Yahweh in His very presence. The blood of the covenant brings communion. As many years later, Moses showed up on another mountain. This is another mountain where God's glory cloud descended. And descended because there stood his son, Jesus Christ. A scene that we call the Mount of Transfiguration. Luke chapter 9 tells us a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son. My chosen son. Listen to him. And if you know that story well, you know Jesus was talking with Elijah and Moses there of a new exodus. That was getting ready to come. The full and final Exodus that was going to arrive upon the earth. And of course, this is an Exodus that would only come through blood of the covenant. Because it was not too long later, Jesus sat at the Passover meal with his disciples on the night when he was betrayed and he took the cup. And what did he say? Quoting from Exodus chapter 24 This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do you want cleansing? Look to Christ's blood of the covenant. Do you want fellowship with the Father and full freedom of forgiveness? Look to Christ's blood that alone can bring you communion because it's through this blood of Christ that, of course, He comes down to us. And not just that, He brings us up God's holy mountain, Mount Zion, that there we might enjoy God's fellowship forever. I wonder if you're washed, In this blood of the covenant. Let's pray together. Lord we want to have the heart of the psalmist who cries out. Wash me, make me pure within. Cleanse us from our sin. Lord, we do pray that you would cleanse our consciences, our souls and hearts of the guilt and transgression that stands against us, that we might enjoy full freedom in Jesus Christ, he who is the covenant and has shed his blood of the covenant. And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen. Let's stand together as we want to respond to God's word in Exodus 24 and even prepare to come to communion as we sing, Behold the Lamb.